Hold on a second, put down your phone Welcome to the feckin' check-in show We might be playing Tekken in the techno drone With Shredder and Spencer but never Donatello The boys are back in town again, shenanigans from QO Man, the listener can't stop panicking Now tell your friends to listen to the sound of us Pissing in the wind And if you feel like joining in, then do it for the win the sun shines, but I find myself in isolation But fear not, we've got beer at the cooking station Audio and video flows are coming for you The trainer at Jimmy's show, it's cameras action do The feckin' checkin', so check your feckin' pulses Lentils, soybeans, chickpeas, whatever indulgence Takes your fancy snakes, ladders, or piss politics Just sit back and relax, we got your weekly fix It's the feckin' checkin' show Welcome to the feckin' checkin' show It's the feckin' checkin' show Welcome to the feckin' check-in show It's the feckin' check-in show It's the feckin' check-in show It's camera sack, it's camera sack, it's camera sack should do It's camera sack, it's camera sack, it's camera sack should do It's camera sack, it's camera sack, it's camera sack should do It's camera sack should do Alright Feckamaniacs, welcome to episode 12 of the Feckin' Check-In. I'm Trainer, and with me as always is my co-host Toomey. How are you doing on this Saturday afternoon Toomey? Pretty, pretty good, pretty good. How are you Trainer, anything going on with you? Not much, yeah, just the usual. Although, last night I was in a public house. A tavern, if you will. A public house. A tavern. I will. You will. Uh, yeah, it was the first time back in a pub and since the lockdown has changed. So some people might want me hung, drawn and quartered for that, uh, depending where you stand on the whole uh, second wave debate. But uh, I was in a pub yesterday and, it, and I really enjoyed it, actually, I have to say. Uh, OK, so this is a very new thing in Ireland uh, with the reopening. So could you describe in brief your experience from start to finish uh, yes well we had to make a booking obviously it was me and my housemate Maya who went um, so I made a booking for 7pm and then we waited at the door it was like going into a restaurant actually you had to wait for our table um, and then they had kind of spaced out the tables a bit more than usual in the pub and there were a couple of cursory plastic partitions but not as much as you'd expect like not not like what you would have seen maybe in the run up to this on Publin for example there were articles like this is what your pub will look like after lockdown and it was like the fucking crystal maze or something but um, it wasn't like the crystal maze it was just like a few few partitions and people were kind of staying out of each other's way a bit not massively a bit um, and then there was only like two people allowed in the toilet at once but and it was all table service obviously there was no going up to the bar but other than that it was your pretty standard pub experience that you would have had prior to lockdown but it was very enjoyable to have a few pints of Guinness and, uh, and sit somewhere other than the poxy apartment for three hours or two hours actually yeah the guinness that you showed in the whatsapp on the photo uh that sentence didn't make sense but (laughs) i mixed up all the words in that sentence but the guinness photograph that you showed on whatsapp uh looked very appetizing (laughs) yeah it was delicious it went down very well went down easy um yeah so that's that's my personal uh uh, anecdote there So, yeah, with me, I've just been sort of buzzing since last week's uh, Andreas interview. I thoroughly enjoyed it. He's a personal uh, hero, although I'm uncomfortable with the word hero, uh, but he's someone I admire. There isn't there a word that is a bit toned down of, of hero. Um, I'd say idle. I'm only joking. Idle. <laughs> <laughs> he's even a, worse, he's, isn't it? To me, he's an Ayatollah. He's, no. he's my leader. <laughs> Uh, no, Andre- Andreas Antonopoulos was great. Uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of Bitcoin. And to hear someone uh, speak so eloquently about it and explain it to our listener. Uh, our idiot listeners <laughs> don't, don't know anything about Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, it's great, great. Uh, somebody I, I, I've watched a lot of YouTube videos of and I've read a lot of his books and to have him there on the feckin' check-in show was, was, I was in disbelief. <laughs> so it was great. That's, that is mad to have somebody whose books you've read on the show. That's quite, uh, that must have been quite the interview for you. It, well, it didn't have the same effect on me simply because I'm not as personally invested or financially invested in Bitcoin. Oh. Uh, but um, uh, it was still great. And after, the aftermath was brilliant. He, he retweeted it for us. And it's actually our second most popular episode of the Feckin' Check-In ever. Um, and I'm, I'm sure it'll be our most popular shortly. Um, but yeah, it was it was brilliant just seeing the, the download shoot up the next morning after he retweeted it and seeing the, the natural organic series of retweets from Bitcoin enthusiasts and other people as well who simply discovered the podcast because he was on it. Um, it was a thrill, actually, in the few days afterwards. Yeah, yeah, it was great getting that buzz because you need that feedback from the audience. And this kind of brings us into the F of the week. Uh, so for the new listener, if there are any new listeners, uh, <laughs> I don't know why I find that funny, uh, but there could be new listeners. But we are the feckin' check-in. Our show is about funny observations, entertainment, culture, and kernels of truth based around the word feck. And uh, so we go through those four segments. So the first one is funny observations. And what we've selected this week is actually what we've termed waiting for Andreas. <laughs> we'll be just going and play that now. God damn it. It's getting oh. close. Oh, one other thing we could do is mute our microphones when he's talking, maybe. If you <laughs> want. Over, <laughs> uh, if you want to, yeah, sorry, I'm back recording now. There's going to be a, few, a, a one or one minute and 30 second gap in my thing there. I don't know what happened. It was when it was switching between the microphones. Okay. Do you want to do another? Do you want us to restart the recording from now, just so we're on the same? Yeah. Okay. Five, a four, three. Five, four, three, two, one. Go. And <laughs> I'm recording now on Audacity. How sycophantic should we be when he initially comes on? <laughs> not too, not too sycophantic. Only okay. mildly, mildly. Don't actually don't be sycophantic at all. How much should we explain to him? Should we? Will we check in about uh, time constraints and stuff? <laughs> I don't know. It's up to you. <laughs> it's up to you. <laughs> All right. Well, I just think you've, you've been doing the communication, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have more social anxiety. I did. I did. All right. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> I'll take care of the introductions. I know. I'm a real human being. Yes, you are. I can't see your screen anymore. You're gone on. Uh, you're gone on to audio, are you? Off the screen, yeah. Great. All right, we're going to deliver our best ever fucking check-in. It's the fucking check-in show. Welcome to the fucking check-in show. Will he even turn up? <laughs> that would be. I don't want to entertain that possibility, but it's possible. Uh. I mean, it's possible he won't show up, but there's been enough communication back and forth that I'd be very surprised if he didn't show up. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I have. <laughs> I'd be very surprised. <laughs> I was very surprised Andreas didn't show up. That'll be the show for this week. So you was... didn't need a password to get in? No, I did not. No, and there was not. no password listed in the email. Yeah, That's I why didn't. I, I noticed I, it. I, I, yeah. I set it up as no password. I just think that's easier. It's another yeah. pitfall. 
sketch. This is really nervous. I, I mean, nerve-wracking. I'm sorry, by the way, for turning up late to Tony Kelly. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> That was, that was one of the most well, the 10 minutes of my life. Because <laughs> I was texting you, trying to send you the link again, trying to entertain Tony Kelly, and also trying to like be all like suave and <laughs> cool about it all. I was sweating buckets. You're like, oh yeah, he's coming, he's usually late, yeah. Yeah, he's coming on now. I just like to let's set the scene. <laughs> I was frantically WhatsApping you, trying to send you updated Zoom links on Gmail, and you were like, "No, it's not coming into my TCD account." <laughs> yeah, you were sending it to me. You check your junk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's in the junk email. Oh god. <laughs> He's like, "Yeah, no, don't worry about it, man." And then I was talking to him about microphones. He's <laughs> like, "Is that the best you've got, Tony?" <laughs> And then when I came on, there was all this confusion about, well, we used Zoom to record. Yeah. Anyway, it was fine, actually, in the end. It was really grand about it, so. And I think if I were a guest, I'd be grand about that shite as well. Like, anyone who's had any involvement in the entertainment industry knows about all this shit. Yeah. They probably sounded off with that shit. Did she hit my wife here in her serum? <laughs> you know, Dr. Phil... <laughs> oh, here he is. Here he is. He's here. Boy, he's here. I'm going to let him in. Okay. Good luck. Hello. Hello, Andreas. I think your microphone might be on mute, uh, Andreas. That's okay. Okay, well, we, we, we can see in the room there anyway, so... Um, um, okay. Should we put in something in the chat? Yeah, try in something in the chat. I'm sure he's done these before. He's, he's, he's probably just logging in. He knows yeah. what he's at. Oh, he says one sec. <laughs> oh, he's listening to us. He, can he knows us. what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's listening to us talk about him set up <laughs> or not. I don't know. Do, 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 do. Very punctual, anyway. So we're happy. Yes, yeah, quite, quite punctual. Yeah. Punctual. Punctual. Yeah. What did I say? Punctual. Yeah. It's functional. <laughs> well. stuff going on in the chat here One that's uh, i said yeah, yeah, yeah. Said i that. see it there yeah, yeah. i see it there yeah <laughs> all right there, yeah. right okay, you are. so the recording is okay and your audacity is okay oh. my audacity is good yeah i'm audacious your microphone oh no it's good. it's audacity has stopped recording again or maybe maybe your microphone could only be in use at one program at a time or something. yeah i'm gonna close down audacity here Okay, maybe that's yeah. did your stop as well no mine is okay hello hello testing hello. one two one two uh we can hear you andreas
All right, so there you have it. A nice dramatic piece there with the piano music added for effect. That was us in our frantic and uh, anxiety-ridden few minutes leading up to waiting for Andreas Antonopoulos to join the call. Not that he was late, but we were early. Yes, it was about a seven-minute clip there, and it was very nerve-wracking. And for me, why I kind of wanted to play it on this episode is because it captures some of the magic of doing a podcast that you lose when you're being recorded um, and you're kind of watching what you say. Like, that was something we we just had our uh, Zoom call uh, on record, so we weren't, like, like, playing up to the, not the camera, but the... The microphone. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't actually really conscious that was being recorded. Cause we never record anything in advance of starting the podcast. We don't have any audio uh, cutoffs or anything like that. We just press record and then we launch into it. Um, but first, yeah, for that, we, we logged into the Zoom call early, obviously, to catch Andreas if he was early or just to be prepared. And um, yeah, it recorded the whole thing. So it's nice to listen to that, listen back to that where we weren't conscious of what we were saying or trying to be funny or anything. Uh, and then when you listen back, it is quite entertaining, actually, to listen to. Yeah, the silly things we were saying. And, and the, you remember the nervous feelings that we had and trying to be like cool and calm about it. Yeah. And it, it actually reminds me of our days back as rappers when you'd be like backstage and re- ready to go on, on stage and yeah. kind of saying all this weird shit. <laughs> yeah, or, or some of the stuff we captured back when we were doing the early lineup stuff. Uh, a lot of that I still have on minidisc, just little outtakes and things that, that were, were caught on, on audio. Maybe we'll play some of those someday in the future, um, just for the laugh. But um, my favourite thing you said there was, I'm a real human being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was, yeah, just trying to convince myself that I, I was able to to talk to to Andreas. Uh, I was just some very funny moments in there. Very good stuff. Okay, um, so I think that moves us nicely on to our next section of the show, which is E in the FEC acronym, and that's for entertainment. So, Toomey, this one was something that you suggested, so why don't you explain to the listener what the E is for this week? Yeah, the E for this week uh, sort of uh, evolved from the Netflix show uh, Trial by Media. Um, So myself and Liz just watched the first episode of that, um, and it was about chat shows in the, I think it was the mid-1990s. Yeah, 95, Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, bang on there. Um, <laughs> and uh, so it was about a murder that that resulted from uh, two people's appearance on a chat show. So it was the Jenny Jones show. So the premise of the show was you go onto the Jenny Jones show, and it's revealed to you that somebody that you don't that you know has a crush on you, and it's, so it's a secret crush show. And these were very popular in the mid nineteen nineties. So the twist is. Uh, the person going onto the show didn't know if it was uh, a male or a female uh, that liked him. He was a man, and he was a kind of uh, very old-fashioned man from. A, um, it seemed like a homophobic upbringing um, that was trying to be like he said on the show. I'm as straight as I'm a hundred percent heterosexual. <laughs> he like he kind of felt he had to emphasize that. So he went on the show, and it was revealed that uh, a friend of his who was gay uh, had a crush on him. The friend who is uh, gay kind of said a few sleazy things to him, made him feel very uncomfortable, and the the straight guy. Um, was clearly uncomfortable on the show, uh, but he was trying to laugh it off. 
um, and he had a background of kind of homophobia. So, so it was a kind of for him, in his perspective, it seemed like a public humiliation. And he went off basically three days later and he went over and had an altercation with the guy who revealed the crush on him and he killed him with a shotgun, I think. Um, yeah, yes. so that's... So that brought us. So, so the whole show was about uh, looking at the Jenny Jones show um, and looking at it from the lens of exploiting uh, people, vulnerable people who go on to it and putting them on national TV and kind of embarrassing them. And there's a crowd there shouting at them, and Jenny Jones is whipping up the crowd. So the show was about the murder, but was also about the impact of those shows from the mid 1990s. So this is actually a famous case. Uh, you can Google it online. Uh, there's a massive section on the Jenny Jones show Wikipedia uh, page about it. So it was huge news at the time. And what I was surprised at was that I had never heard of this before in my entire life. And I used to watch that show and shows like that constantly as a teenager in the 1990s because it was on Sky Television during the day, especially during the summer holidays. Uh, I would actually watch Sally Jesse Raphael, Jenny Jones, um, whatever the hell else, whoever the hell Ricky else Lake. was on. Not so much Ricky Lake. I don't think that was televised as much during when I was watching a TV anyway but a bit a bit of Ricky Lake as well though but yeah I watch this all the time I don't ever remember hearing about this yeah I never heard about it either and I, my memory of the Jenny Jones show that it w- was that it was more like lighthearted and kind of funny that that would have been a lighthearted episode had it not resulted in a murder that's the only thing <laughs> yeah yeah it probably would but like there's still there was a really disturbing undercurrent of the audience like laughing at the guests like making fun of them making fun of their emotions and jenny jones kind of whipping it up so for me it seemed looking back on it it seemed quite dark like straight away even though the topic was seemingly light-hearted i think that show that episode never aired obviously because there was a resulting court case and all that type of stuff but um i think through the lens of the documentary it makes it look dark but had you just watched that episode had it been on late night tv or something and you had watched that without the lens of the documentary i don't think it would appear as dark or sinister at all that's yeah fair enough you (laughs) i think for me it's it's the way that it's it's just you have people up there they're vulnerable they're they're not really they don't seem to be um cognizant of the effect that going on the show and revealing their personal business is going to have on them um so i did a bit more just to broaden it out a bit i, I went back and, and and had a look at some of these chat shows and i looked at jenny jones another episode from from her her uh, pump and it was the the title of the show is i play more than one guy <laughs> And the whole premise was it was about women who lead men on and get them to buy them stuff. Uh, so that, that and, it, and, and it was a mother and a daughter who were both doing that. Now, the mother uh, was, seemed to be in her 30s and the daughter was 15. So they were coming on. They seemed like they were probably on drugs. Um, they were dressed very skimpily. Not, not that there's anything wrong like that, but they seemed like they might have been prostitutes. Um, and... It seemed like them getting gifts from men was in the wink of elbow language of delight. <laughs> to, to, use do, that again. to do with them being prostitutes. <laughs> yeah, to use that phrase again. So you have like, and this is a 15-year-old girl. And then later on in the Jenny Jones show, that episode, uh, a man, a 20-something-year-old man comes on. And he's he said that he's waiting for the 15-year-old girl to get older so he can have sex with her. And there's all this innuendo. Jesus. And so she's gone around like dressed like a prostitute, 15 years old, gone around with her mum trying to get men to buy her things. And in return, it's not disclosed what she does or what the mother does, but there, there's the implication that there's something done in return. 
Um, yeah. And Jenny Jones is whipping up the crowd and they're booing them. They're like, why are you doing this? And like the crowd are, are making fun of them. They're insulting them. And these people up on stage are just, they're, they're flaunting themselves around. They're walking around the stage. And it's just like, if you go back and look at it, it's on YouTube. Jenny Jones, I played more than one guy. It's absolutely shocking. Uh, the, the ridicule of, of kind of normal people. Well, not normal people, kind of vulnerable people. What I was saying earlier, though, is that had you happened across a show like that, you might have th- you might have thought it was dated and you wouldn't see something like that today. But what I mean is that that was the norm in the 1990s. Um, and when, when you've got the perspective of a documentary that focuses on the negative effects, it does show them to you in a much clearer... It gives you a much clearer picture of how negative these TV shows were and how exploitative they were. That was the first thing that came to mind. When I watched a couple of clips you sent me, I didn't watch that I played more than one guy, but I watched another one. Uh, you sent me a few. I can't remember what it was now. Uh, I sent you a Ricky Lake, you dissed me, but look at me oh, now. Oh yeah, I watched that, yeah. Yeah, that was it. So so beauty is the most important thing in the thing in the world and everything else is secondary. And I, I used to be considered ugly and now I'm considered beautiful. Therefore, I'm better and you're terrible. You were terrible to begin with, but now you're worse because I've won and I, I'm now beautiful. But then I thought, is it any more exploitative or is it any worse than what we have today? For example, have you ever watched Khloe Kardashian's Revenge Body? Have you ever seen this? <laughs> no. <laughs> so that is a current reality TV show where Khloe Kardashian, one of the Kardashian sisters, gets somebody on TV who has a body that they're not happy with. They, they might be overweight. They mostly are just overweight. And they want to get in shape to get revenge on somebody who has wronged them in their past. And it can be a boyfriend who dumped them or their parents who were too hard on them or a gym teacher who told them they didn't have what it takes or whatever. And they basically spend the episode trying to get slim, to beautify themselves and to te- get revenge on a person who they want to get the better of and prove wrong and I think it's the exact same premise just dress up a little differently but I think that stuff is actually still going on today it's the same amount of exploitation uh, it's for the same gains uh, to create reality TV cheaply uh, they, I'm sure they pay these people fuck all to be on television and it's going to attract a vulnerable person to appear on the show to begin with yeah I think you're right it's a similar premise um, it's probably dressed up in a more nuanced way but if you, if you go back to that ricky lake show so they you diss me but look at me now so the disser comes on so the person who insulted the person when they were in school and that person is booed they come onto the stage and they're booed they're they're like treated like a piece of shit they're yeah. people are shouting at them they're they're this made out to be this complete villain even though you like they insulted the person when they were a child <laughs> so yeah. and then and then they, they hit the music and then the, the disse comes on and she's hot now and she's a hero and she's like flaunting around the stage and the crowd are up on their feet like chanting and go Ricky and all this shit. And the crowd are like the judges uh, and Ricky's riling up the crowd. So yeah, it's while it's the same premise uh, delivered in a different way, I think particularly in those chat shows in the, the mid 1990s, it was so obvious. It was so in your face. And what I wonder is how did we not notice it at the time? Because uh, looking back on it now, it just stands out a mile how exploitative it was yeah that was anyway that was my initial take on it but i think again that we haven't gotten any better as humans or in reality tv terms i think like the x factor american idol uh big brother um and other shows like that are just as exploitative it's just dressed up in a flashier more kind of digestible format but they they play on the same insecurities and the same anxieties of people and they um they basically require some aspect of negativity in the person's life in order to exploit it and make a tv show out of it yeah i think you're right and i think the 
the people who go on uh, those reality TV shows suffer like a, a huge proportion or some proportion of them suffer a lot from that. And you can see that from the suicides that arose out of uh, Love Island. Uh, there is exploitation and there is people without the the correct mindset where they don't try and find peace from within. They're trying to find um happiness by impressing other people by looking better than other people by getting that validation from from fame and from people you don't know and it's a it's a huge it's an insecurity that's exploited on these shows yeah but just just to give the uh, conversation a, a broader uh, kind of reach uh, i did hear jerry springer on i think it was an episode of stone cold steve austin's podcast because i can't remember where else i would have heard him um so it had to be one of those podcasts i listen to where they have celebrities on whatever um and he was trying to explain and justify from his position and there's a short clip at the start of trial by media where he he says a small few words about it but his justification for having these types of people on his show was he was often accused of being exploitative and taking advantage of people who were vulnerable a lot of the times quite poor and didn't know any better and therefore obviously would have jumped at a chance to be on television but his justification was that these people in their day-to-day lives, never get to be the star of anything. Many times they're poor, they don't have good jobs, nobody asks them their opinion on anything. Nobody considers anything they say or do to be important or have any value. So by having them on his show, he was giving these people a spotlight and for once a chance to be a star and to be somebody, because most of the time they weren't anybody really in their own personal lives. He also mentioned that many of the people on his show had never owned a passport and oftentimes had never travelled outside of their own state. So for them, it was like a vacation, getting to be on television, vision and getting to be listened to and to be a center of attention and also to have their opinions to be deemed valid by somebody for the first time ever in their lives so that's jerry springer's justification of yeah well <laughs> that's that's a nice way to look at it for him he's trying to justify what he's doing but i suppose the, those needs are met but you're also going into a situation where you're being ridiculed you have all your private business all your emotions shared on national tv and it might not hit you when you go on and you have that day but maybe a couple of years down the line you probably are affected by that or probably immediately after that for a, a proportion of people on those shows. Yep, that's fair enough. I just wanted to bring that in. <laughs> At the time I was listening to it and I was going, eh, maybe he has a point. But no, it's just watching these clips and just thinking about it myself, uh, it just reminded me that like this has been constant since the... I think I think since the dawn of entertainment. But I think you're right. I like I think it's still going on. I don't think it's to the same uh, degree of intensity where those chat shows were on every day doing this. So I uh, like to to kind of conclude my point on it. It's Sally Jesse Raphael, who's kind of an older uh, woman who's like kind of a, a benevolent kind of anti figure who's really kind and really nice. Um, but her one of her shows was entitled "I'm Only Twelve and I'm Pregnant," <laughs> and. So this entailed 12, a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old girl going on uh, saying that they were pregnant. It happened that they were homeless. They, they, they were living in group homes. And the audience is making fun of them, telling them they shouldn't be pregnant, telling them they should be getting an abortion, all these types of things, judging them. Um, and it's absolutely shocking. So I, while I agree that it's still going on, I don't think it's as frequent or as intense as it was back then. Fair enough. Okay, a few other points I wanted to make about the actual Netflix show, uh, Trial by Media, that episode. Uh, what I thought was one of the scummiest parts of the whole thing was that um, Warner Brothers were the parent company that owned the production company that made Jenny Jones, uh, the Jenny Jones show. And the family of the deceased went on to try and sue the Jenny Jones show for exploiting their son. Um but they ultimately were unsuccessful. They sued them, but then it was reversed three years later by like the Supreme Court or something like that. But um, 
The whole court case was broadcast on Court TV, which was also owned by Warner Brothers. So Warner Brothers are being sued for one of their other shows that's exploitative, and they're showing the court case, the court case about that exploitation on their television channel, Court TV. It's just fucking. It's the most uh, ultimate of just bad taste, and oh, I crass, just couldn't believe it. it. It's, it's great. Yeah. It's it's hilarious and how disturbing it is. It's it's dark, dark. Yeah, theory. like. They're such a media conglomerate that they've got themselves covered from all angles. So even when they're being sued, they can make money. Out of <laughs> they're probably making more money out of the broadcasting than the, than the payout. And also, I really enjoyed seeing Jenny Jones being cross-examined on the first <laughs> on the on the first day. Uh, Figer hit her with the softballs. You know, he made her laugh a couple of times. He uh, he didn't really tr- press her in any way. And then on the second day, he lured her into a trap. Basically, her admitting that she smiles a lot when she's uncomfortable, and he's like. Isn't that exactly what... Uh, I f- fucking forget the guy's name now. I had it up in front of me. But isn't that exactly what the person on the show did when he was uncomfortable on your show? And then he just starts nailing her yeah. questions one after the other after the other. Then her, smiles, her smile quickly fades and she can't smile anymore. <laughs> yeah, and sh- she falls apart on the stand, I thought, at that point. Yeah, and it's kind of... you have. I had a bit of Freud or whatever the, the word is for that. Yeah, and one, one final point on that, I, I thought uh, Jenny Jones's personality and that perpetual smile on her face and even the way she speaks uh, quite reminded me of the actress Laura Linney. Do you know Laura Linney, the blonde haired actress? She's been in loads of stuff, uh, including The Truman Show and Ozark. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Now we're there. So do you know how she plays that character on The Truman Show where obviously she's a participant in the show, but she's married to Truman Burbank and she has this perpetual smile and that perpetual kind of happiness, but it's so false. Yeah. Uh, I just thought it was really reminiscent of that. And I was wondering, did Laura Linney base herself on Jenny Jones? But I think I'm going <laughs> off on a wild tangent here. It's a hot take. <laughs> speculating all sorts of crap. Why not? Okay, that was, uh, was a really uh, fruitful discussion. Lots of fruit there. Yes. Uh, so okay great um, so shall we go on to the C the cultural uh, part of the FEC acronym yes we shall go on to the C so this week this is another uh, Toomey special so why don't you introduce this one to me this C this cultural observation is about the culture of mandatory exercise uh, and what I wanted to say here to set the scene is about my own personal history with exercise um, so tune in listener <laughs> uh, so I grew up, um, I was born in Dublin in 1985. No, uh, sorry. <laughs> um, so uh, I grew up at a time up, when exercise, sorry. <laughs> nobody could spell exercise. Um, oh. I grew up playing football at a semi-serious level, uh, Gaelic football in Ireland um, throughout my teens and my early 20s. And it was a kind of it was regarded as a a high intensity training now that was two trainings a week and a match on a saturday or a sunday and back then that was all you had to do even though we were were training at quite a a, a playing at quite a high level that was the training so if you did something extra to that it was like woohoo that person's in the gym Oh, oh yeah um so that was my conceptualization of exercise. Twice a week was perfect training and then a match at the weekend. Three times a week, max. Um, and then over time, it sort of drifted into this thing where I started going out for walks. And maybe other, I, I noticed other people doing it. And I was like, oh, I'm going out for a walk. I do my two trainings a week and I'm going out for a walk. 
And I remember feeling really proud of myself. It was a big deal that I'd gone out for this extra walk <laughs> for half an hour on a Friday. And then over time, I sort of faded away from the football and I noticed that it became more about gyms. Um, so then it was, okay, you're in the gym. And then it, sort of, it was like, the, I remember the, the gym instructor telling me, yeah, you need to be in here four times a week. And I was like, okay, so now it's four times a week. So I was in there like four times a week in the gym trying to get fit. But I still I still felt like, this was my early 20s, I still felt like I was ahead of the curve because I was like, like in the gym and feeling fit. But then over time, everybody started doing it. Everybody um, started being uh, exercising every every day or going for walks every day. It became a sort of a mandatory requirement. And now it's gotten mm. to the stage where everybody has to, where everybody has this sort of guilt or pressure, it seems to me, to exercise every day. And everybody has their own particular exercise that they're really good at, their own like project or something. And everyone's really fit and healthy. And you walk around, <laughs> like about 10 years ago, you'd see fat people <laughs> going around. You're like, yeah, I'm not as fat as that person. But now it's yeah. like everybody's like an expert on fitness. And it seems to be the requirement is practically every day for some exercise at least five times a week is now no longer like uh above average for exercise so it's it's no longer a big deal to exercise five times a week (laughs) which is crazy yeah (laughs) it's kind of crazy where if you don't exercise i well for me anyway i feel guilty about it i should be exercising why didn't i do my exercise my exercise (laughs) (laughs) it's crazy and then i'm thinking like when will this stop it's like such a grind it's like it's gonna be like this forever like when i was playing football it was like two times a week for the match at the weekend you train but now it's just like this is forever and it's never gonna end um yeah so so that was my kind of experience of it have you noticed uh, uh what, what has your journey sorry been like in this kind of very different very very different um but i can relate to that so much and I'll, I'll get back to your points in a second but i just want to tell you my own personal history of exercise so up until the age of, what was it? It was early 2014, so let's say I would have been 28, 28 years old. Uh, I had never exercised a day in my life. Um, so I never, actually, okay, that's not quite true. That's, that's, that's sensationalism. Um, I did play GAA football when I was younger for two seasons, almost two seasons. And when I think back in that time, I have virtually no memories of it. <laughs> I fucking hated it. Yeah, I absolutely hated it. But um, I was terrible at all sports. I had never had any interest in them, but my mom, but being concerned for me as a parent would be brought me down to Cavendish GAA club one Saturday and asked if I could start on the team. And I think she kind of hoodwinked me into it. I don't, I don't remember agreeing to this, but, um, I was like, ma'am, they're all way better than me. They're deadly at Gaelic and I'm shit and I don't like it and blah, blah, blah. She's like, just try. The manager told me that everyone's at the same level. None of them are any good. And I knew that to be patently false because, of course, I was in school and I did PE with people and everyone was like eight million times better than me at all sports. Um, but I went along with it and I knew a couple of people on the team. People we were in primary school with were on the team. So it wasn't too bad. But I, like, I, I still hated it. But I did that for two seasons. So technically you could say I was exercising during that time. Um, I must have been. I was definitely running a bit. I went to training. There was two two trainings a week at one point. So I was definitely doing exercise around that time. But I, I quit the club after about two years. And then I didn't do anything. I never did any physical activity really at all. I remember my brother trying to get me to go out for runs when I was about 13. That lasted all of about five weeks. We went down to Kilpoggett Park and it lasted about five weeks and I just gave up. And then I remember learning to cycle quite late on in my life. I was 10 and I got a bike for my birthday, which I didn't want, but it was forced upon me. Learned to cycle at a late age, never really cycled as a result of it. was never comfortable on a bike, so I never got that exercise either. Um, And then... 
It wasn't until really I was about 28, after years of not exercising, the only exercise I ever got would have been walks. I could walk for Ireland, but like it wasn't walking at an exercise pace, if you know what I mean. It was just walking from place to place. And I was putting on weight, and and I wasn't really paying attention to my weight. I didn't own a weighing scales at that point, but this would, would have been early 2014. And I've had I've had constant heartburn since about 2009, 2010. And I got to the point where Rennie wasn't working for me and over-the-counter stuff like Gaviscon wasn't working for me. So I went to the doctor about it and I went into my GP at the time, which was based in Cabra and uh, still have the same GP actually. And he took one look at me and he goes, how much do you weigh? I was like, "Uh, I don't know. (laughs) So he's like, I think you could probably do it losing a couple of stone. And I went, a a couple of stone? He's like, yeah, just stand up on the scales there. And I stood on the scales and with my clothes on, uh, on the scales I was 16 stone 5 pounds so nearly 16 and a half stone and I was fucking absolutely shocked at it it was the heaviest I'd ever been in my entire life and uh, I was like okay so he was saying the heartburn could have been brought on by uh, weight and it turned out it wasn't actually in the long run it was because I have a hiatus hernia and it's not severe enough to operate on but it does cause you to have heartburn every day of your life and like, unless you take a uh, medication basically uh, for the rest of your life so tough shit um, but anyway at that point they were saying it was my weight Um so he booked me at an appointment in the gastrointestinal unit in the Matter Hospital. And I went in there, met the gastrointestinal um, consultant. And he took one look at me and he goes, I think he could do it losing at least two stone. <laughs> so <laughs> within the space of about a week, I've been told by two doctors to lose at least two stone. And I stood up on the scales and lo and behold, I was like 16 stone, four pounds or something quite similar. And I was like, Jesus Christ. And then I started to look at photos of myself, recent photos. And you know, there's always this revelation. Uh, it's normally with women like or something. And they're like, I saw a photo of myself at a wedding and I could not believe the way I looked. And um, I started looking at some photos on my phone but with, with a more critical eye. And I just looked at them and I was like, you fat bastard. <laughs> you you fat, fat man. <laughs> and like, I was like, how the fuck did this happen? I was, I was always a rake. I was always so slender and like scrawny to the point where like when I lay down in bed, my rib cage and my hips stuck out prominently because I, I couldn't put on weight but at some point in my mid-20s my metabolism changed and I started putting on weight piling it on actually so I didn't want to go to a gym because I was too embarrassed I knew I couldn't run because I tried it before when I was 10 and that was my excuse for not doing it ever again so I uh, decided that I would do DDP yoga obviously as, as a wrestling fan I was hearing about DDP yoga all the time and people who were like had never exercised before were doing DDP yoga and it was something I could do at home in the comfort of my own apartment with nobody watching and as some some people might hear the word yoga and go how can you possibly lose weight doing that well this is a very intense form of yoga where you uh, apply resistance to every position and move you do so you're using your own body as its own weight and it's basically like calisthenics and kind of almost like lifting weights and you sweat buckets basically doing it and it's a, it's a great workout for your entire body and over the course of a few months I lost a stone and over the course of the next few months I lost uh, another half stone and then I started running because I got cocky and then I started going to the gym and that's <laughs> where we are now <laughs> <laughs> all right good. so on and off over the years so on and off over the years I've had to learn to exercise or else I'm going to be 16 and a half stone and I, I you can't be having that so uh, so I, I've had to like you I have to exercise now multiple times a week or else I'm a fat fuck <laughs> but that makes me think of the okay the mandatory requirement that you kind of have to exercise you've kind of had that revel- revelation and for you it seems to have been pointed out quite like in in your face that th- you actually have to do this or else you'll be a fat bastard <laughs> which 
is probably a positive overall. Put- oh, it is definitely. If, if I hadn't, if that hadn't been pointed out to me back then, I don't know if I would have been given the kick up the arse to do it. But I can definitely relate to your thing of um, when is it going to end? <laughs> because that was the point I related to most. Because you're like, I'm now doing yoga Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, following the DDP yoga plan again, and then I'm, I'm going out for walks. I'm mixing in a bit of running. I'm doing some. Uh, um dumbbell workouts as well trying to mix it up but it's like it's four or five days a week and, and sometimes you're just like oh for fuck's sake yeah, yeah. <laughs> like again i have to do this shit again so a, it's an extra block of time that has to be taken out of nearly every day and it's going to be like that for the rest of our lives <laughs> so it is yeah it's, it's harrowing <laughs> yeah it's harrowing it's a grind um it's never ending um but yeah on the other side, it makes you healthy. It makes you feel good about yourself. And yeah, it like walking around not feeling like a fat bastard makes you feel better every day, I think. It does. And, and I have to say, in the intervening six years between when I started doing DDP yoga and now, I've my weight has crawled back up to like 15 and a half. And I, 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 one year ago, so I'm back down just under 14 stone now, which is a co- very comfortable weight for me. And uh, a year and a half ago, I was at a friend's wedding in Bulgaria. And I was, sorry, no. A year ago, I was a stone and a half heavier, I meant to say. It was exactly a year ago. I was at a friend's wedding in Bulgaria, and uh, I was looking back at those pictures, and I was absolutely ballooning again. And uh, do you know what I can pinpoint my, my weight loss to and my continued keeping of my weight at the level that it is now? No, go on. It's when we did the Vegan for a Week episode of Open Us. Ah. So before we did that, I was up around 15 and a half, 15 and a few pounds, and then we did the vegan for a week. And after a few weeks, I shot down to 14 stone. And I've never really put it back on, even though I have been eating meat again and eating all the things I used to beforehand. So it seemed to like just, this sounds ridiculous and like pseudoscience, but it seemed to like kickstart my fucking, my weight or something. I don't know. Or like it gave me that boost of just weight loss. And that weight has never crept back on. Now I am doing exercise and stuff like that, but I know now when things get bad, I can always pull the V trigger. Uh, thanks Kenny Omega, to uh, to, to kickstart my weight loss again. So that's something that's, to keep in my back pocket. That's really cool because uh, vegan for a week actually changed my life in that way as well. Like in that me and Liz will often have like a vegan dinner or like, or a vegetarian dinner. We don't like check the ingredients and all that. But like what we found is that meat seems to us to be much heavier when we do eat it. Like there's a lot of fat around meat, like when you buy it and um mm. you really notice that when you take a break from from meat and like yourself i know that if i wanted to try and lose weight you could just p- pull the v trigger as you said yeah i don't i don't eat as much meat as much meat as i used to i will say but i do eat meat now i can't possibly even say i'm anything close to being a vegan but um yeah it was uh it just that just boosted me and for some reason i've never i've, I've been exercising but i've never put it back on which is um uh, it's good <laughs> vegan for a week changed our lives and that's not an overstatement when i say that no it it absolutely did for me um and i often think of doing it again but i just haven't done it (laughs) yes that's that's the best way i can put it but i know definitely keep it in my back pocket if my my weight starts ballooning definitely
Um, okay, good stuff. That's uh, That was a very interesting chat there about exercise. So just to finish us off this week, it's my kernel of truth this time. So uh, this one is from a pro wrestling website called Cage Side Seats, which I uh, look check out every day. It's a wrestling news site, but also has opinion pieces and, and stuff like that on it. So this is from um, a regular column called Sermon on the Mat, and it was written by Reverend Claire Elizabeth. So that's obviously her pen name. I'm not sure. Maybe her real name is Claire Elizabeth. But um, it was about the recent pro wrestling scandal that took place. Um, so it was kind of focused on the Irish and UK scenes, but it spread across to the US as well, where basically a lot of pro wrestlers were being called out as being abusive, sexually abusive, mentally abusive. Uh, wrestling trainers in wrestling school, schools were being uh called out about being abusive as well and uh, treating trainees with disrespect. Lots of horrible stuff came out about people uh, sending text messages and pictures to underage girls and even underage lads as well. And uh, there was all sorts of every every possible form of sexual, mental, physical, verbal uh, abuse you can imagine came out in this movement called Speaking Out. And it was all over Twitter, Twitter and social media. It started with the wrestler David Starr, a US wrestler who's based a lot in the UK and Ireland. He was actually the champion of over-the-top wrestling in Ireland and other British companies as well. And he was accused by an ex of uh, rape, basically. Um, then he he kind of came out on social media and he half admitted to grey rape, which is, um, you know, a grey area of rape where consent wasn't present, but they had sex anyway. And then once that allegation came out, there were allegations flooding out for all sorts of companies from the smallest company you've ever heard of to the largest one you've ever heard of. And it was just a horrible time to be a wrestling fan and obviously horrible for all of these people who this happened to as well. And the bravery of some of these people to come out, they were speaking out against some of the largest names in the industries that they're in, whether it was the Irish scene and it was like a lower card wrestler speaking out against one of their top stars or whether it was the UK scene the likes of people in NXT UK, which is the UK-based um, kind of training ground for WWE wrestlers, um, speaking out against them and speaking out against some of the prominent stars. And But they had this collective voice and a collective power. And once the movement gathered momentum, it gave... Uh, lots more and it was mainly females i have to say some males but gave lots more of these people a voice and courage to to finally speak out against the abuse they'd suffered for in many cases for years and nobody had done anything about it and it's very reminiscent of the me too scandal in hollywood or the harvey weinstein case uh, except obviously that was a load of women focusing on one individual whereas with the the wrestling scandal it was more loads of people and loads of individuals um and it was just horrible it was a horrible time and it reminds me of some things that tony kelly said when he was a guest in our podcast where he didn't say anything specific but we were talking about the martina uh session moth receiving unsolicited calls and texts and dick pics and all and he was like it makes me question some of the types of the people who are involved in some of the industries i'm in that's not an exact quote but it's it's a paraphrase and i didn't really think much of it at the time i thought he was talking more about fans but maybe he was talking more and i'm not putting words in his mouth but maybe he was talking more about a lot of the seedy creepy horrible dirty rapists in many cases who were involved in wrestling and it was it was disgusting and i was i was reading a lot about it at the time and uh, i read one article by this aforementioned uh, reverend claire elizabeth and she was saying i love pro wrestling but it doesn't love me back that was the name of the article and at the very end of the article there was this lovely quote uh, or lovely phrase or sentence and it said the arc of progress is long and it bends slowly so she was using this to explain how she doesn't want to give up on wrestling because 
things are going to change it might take a while and they'll change for the better so that's my kernel of truth for this week but it was such a beautiful phrase i had to google it and uh, it turns out that it was actually uh previously said also slightly differently by martin luther king and that was the art of the the arc of the moral universe is long but it bends towards justice and then when i was googling that i found out that that is actually a paraphrase from uh, theodore parker who was an american transcendentalist i don't know what that is and reforming minister of the unitarian church and what he had said actually it's a longer quote he said I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I am sure it bends towards justice. So that's a very, very long-winded way of saying that horrible stuff might have happened. Things have been really disgusting and horrible for a while, but things will probably get better in the future and it is always getting better. Things are always getting better, even if they seem like they're worse than they ever have been before. By people talking about them, by them being brought up in the media, by them being featured on the news and by people's voices being heard, they are getting better. Well, well put. I don't have too much to add to that because I think you've summarized everything really well. Um, but one question I have is, what's it like being a huge wrestling fan reacting to this? And what's your future um, kind of what's what's your future involvement with irish wrestling in particular going to be as a fan well it like it made me question some of the people who i have supported over the years and one of them is david Starr, and um, I, I actually participated in an ott wrestling promo video for david Starr's match against john moxley which was supposed to happen at the uh summer show that was cancelled in august and it was 20 of us wearing costumes and david Starr was cutting promos and it was great to be involved in ott just put it up on facebook said we need 20 extras by tomorrow in the national stadium and i replied straight away i was like yes i wouldn't miss this for the world and it was a great experience and they were he was cutting promos off the top of his head and at that time i thought david Starr was the greatest person on one of the greatest wrestlers in the world a great promo i actually got a picture with him a photo and um previously we you and me and your brother had been to a show in um in the national stadium where basically the the, the goody and the baddie the villain and the babyface or the heel and the babyface going into the match it was jordan devlin who was the babyface and star was the heel and it was such a good match that they both worked that uh they switched the audience and the fans started cheering David Starr and I was one of them and they started booing Jordan Devlin who was the hometown hero and now both of those people have accusations out against them. Now it hasn't been proven that Jordan Devlin did anything and David Starr pretty much admitted that he did but it's just the idea of supporting people and they're not the only two people there's loads of people it's the idea of supporting people and paying money and contributing to this constantly uh that it just made me feel i was just disgusted um but after a while after reading a few things and looking at twitter and re reading a few posts from wrestlers and, and a lot of the, the people who are decent human beings as well involved in wrestling it made me just be hopeful for the future and, and maybe i don't ever want to trivialize what has happened to any of these people but maybe a clean out was required and maybe it's a good thing that so many of these people have been identified and they can be flushed out and they will never be allowed to participate in the wrestling industry again they've been they've been blackballed basically they blackballed themselves with their behavior and their actions and i think overall even though a lot of horrible things happened along the way overall it's good that those people have been blackballed that's that's my take on it and i'm willing to go on and support companies in the future with that knowledge that 
this type of behavior and these actions won't be tolerated and all of the companies pretty much have come out and said we will not tolerate these individuals any longer these people will never work for us again etc 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 um so yeah it it, it felt horrible for a long time but now i feel a bit better about the future in that I don't think this type of behavior is going to be accepted anymore by fans, by wrestlers, by company owners or anybody. And the, and the change in culture of, of people pointing it out. And I suppose overall then it's, it's horrible that this stuff was going on for so long and that it was so prevalent. But it's actually very positive that it's been called out and that, that the movement gathered momentum. And you're right, it, it shouldn't happen, happen again to anywhere near the same degree. So that's a real positive. In the, but it still takes a, l- a long time to, I suppose, get over that and process what's what's happened, I would say. Yeah, it, it was a watershed moment, definitely, in the professional wrestling industry. Um, and watershed moments are, overall, they're usually good. <laughs> it, gets yeah. rid, it gets rid of the dirt. <laughs> As the old saying goes, watershed moments are good. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was originally said by no <laughs> but uh yeah so the arc of progress is uh what is it is long and it bends, <laughs> it bends slowly bends slowly so there you go so that's me uh on that i, I was going to talk talk about it a few weeks ago but i was like ah I, I don't i didn't know if i had anything extra to contribute but I, I did like that phrase and i liked the article and i've had time to reflect on it and that's where i am at the moment excellent very very good uh enjoyed hearing that and we are gonna finish this week's feckin check-in show with our song of the week actually uh the listener might have noticed that we didn't have our song of the week in the middle of the show uh, we're testing out having a clear run of the fecks uh in the main body of the show and we're going to close with our song of the week uh which is your choice this week trainer um so what is your song of the week my song of the week is called Back in the Crowd by Tom Waits. And this is a beautiful, what I'd consider a beautiful breakup song. So it's about a couple who are going through a difficult time. And Tom Waits is singing the part, I presume, of the male. And he's saying, if you don't want me anymore, put me back in the crowd. And I just thought it's such a beautiful way of saying, release me to the world if you don't want to love me anymore. But there's also kind of an undertone of... Um, him going off to fight in the American Civil War. So there's a refrain at one point saying, there's a battle going on between the blue and the grey, and if you don't want my love, please don't make me stay. So I think maybe it's about a breakup, but it could also be about him going off to fight in the war if he's going to break up with his loved one. And also just the overall kind of metaphor that maybe love is war in itself. And I think this is a beautiful song by Tom Waits from the album Bad As Me from 2011. So that's my song of the week. You don't want these arms to hold you all these lips to kiss If you found someone new Put me back in the crowd Put the sun behind the clouds Put me back in the crowd There's a battle going on between the And if you don't want my love, don't make me stay.